Hello and welcome to our second series of The Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Kleinwood Hambros. In this series, we explore how to simplify life's financial challenges and ask what responsibility means in the current world. My name is Fahad Kumar, Chief Investment Officer, and I'll be hosting today's episode. The rural sector is in a state of significant transition. Agricultural policymakers find themselves juggling food and rural productivity with net zero emissions targets, reversing the decline in biodiversity and the need for social cohesion. How can land be both a source of and a solution to climate change? As land use evolves rapidly, can investors capitalize on new and emerging opportunities? Today, I'm joined by Emily Norton, Head of Rural Research at Savills. Emily is a leading commentator on agriculture, sustainability, and rural property issues, and has been involved in the sector both personally and professionally for over two decades. Born and raised on a dairy and arable farm in Norfolk, Emily studied law before earning her master's in sustainable agriculture. She has helped build an award-winning family dairy brand, advised European politicians on agricultural policy, and provides strategic advice to a broad range of institutional private clients, supply chains, and investors. Emily, welcome. Thank you very much, Fahad. It's a delight to be here. Emily, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. How was growing up on a dairy and arable farm in Norfolk? It was an amazing experience, actually. It's one that not many people are blessed to have now. And I think those growing up in rural places and on farms have a different perspective on life and a different, sometimes a different value set, I think. The appreciation of what it actually takes to look after a landscape and also the struggle and the hard work. I mean, it wasn't easy. It's difficult running a family business. There's a lot of tensions. There's a lot of people to keep happy. But fundamentally, it's a really good way of enabling people to have a good quality of life in our rural spaces. So I think that experience and and the life that I was lucky enough to have certainly gives me a perspective now on seeing how these different trends are impacting on the rural economy. So just building back on that, what trends do you see in the rural economy that connect you back to your youth? The really interesting thing, Fahad, is that we are transitioning out of the common agricultural policy. You know, the, the CAP really was the founding principle of the European Union, kind of social cohesion and keeping people fed after the Second World War was a really major political priority. So that entire sort of system of creating cohesion across the whole of the European bloc through food and through a farming based policy that also had big elements of rural development in there and respecting outlying areas and kind of making sure that people had a good quality of life through agriculture was really, really important. It was sort of like the founding block of what we'd been thinking about in terms of land use policy since 1973, when the UK joined um, the European Economic Area, as it was then. And so now that we're kind of leaving that political paradigm and sort of kind of creating this entirely new identity for land use in this country, there are some really deep changes that go with that. It's not simply a question of, you know, this is a top down policy and we were kind of, you know, paying for these particular outcomes. It's it's the, the entire kind of political system and approach to land and land management is changing. And so whereas within the European system, perhaps this idea of the family farm and, and the importance of lifestyle and 
um, heritage that came with place and how important that was to protect through, you know, systems like protected um, geographic indications and the way that food is connected with the land and the identity of the people who are producing it. We're now kind of getting the system which is entirely based around public money for public goods. So it's much more kind of driven by economics. It's much more driven by ideas of markets and what people are prepared to pay for and sort of disaggregating the sort of social side of it and, and that connectivity between people and place uh, and farming and, and much more into this idea of environmental targets and net zero targets and probably still growth and productivity and well-being within that. But kind of the fundamental targets that we've been set are environmental and they're not social. So what I gather from your response, Emily, is at root, it's almost as if we've separated all the beautiful bits of people, place, heritage and soil from these technocratic, target-driven policies that come from above. They may make great sense, but they actually seem to ignore the cultural realities, the ethos that makes the land what it is. Is that getting close to the issue? It, it is it's getting it's getting very close to the political heart of it absolutely and yet I can see absolutely both sides of the story here okay I, I'm, I'm chair of the Oxford farming conference this year and the conference that's just been in, in January one of the things that we wanted to pick up on was this sort of the idea of the validity of family farming as as a as a model because we, if we've got an environmental model and we've got some stuff around food and food quality we don't have that kind of social piece in the middle that says, Actually, family farming is really important for all of these reasons, because you're passing on knowledge, you're passing on skills, you're passing on a sense of custodianship. You know, we're moving away from that just to say it's up to businesses, farm businesses to make sense of all of this. And so I, I can you know, we can hear the impact that that's going to have on communities. And we've got some very prominent people, uh, people like James Rebanks, who are really kind of strong advocates for kind of that idea of custodianship of the countryside. And yet, equally, there are critics out there who say that the ability to pass on wealth from one generation to the next through land acts as a major barrier to new entrants coming into the sector. And this idea of fairness, it's not fair <laughs> that we can't access land and resources to farm, to be able to grow our own food, to be able to um, meet our personal objectives for net zero or we want to deliver for the environment. It's this kind of clash between sort of people who've been there for a long time and feel threatened by the change very, very understandably, and people who perhaps want their own opportunity to start a career in agriculture or in farming or in land management, and are denied the opportunity to do so by by the system, the inertia within the system. So there's going to be a lot of polarisation within this debate at the moment. And I think that's the key thing to look out for. Where's Where are the truly successful business models and where are the true opportunities and how can we access them and, and achieve them whilst also respecting the um, cultural importance of preserving what we've got? Emily, taking a step back for a second, of all the investments that we make for clients, equities, bonds, etc., land is by far the most emotive one and the one people want to talk about the most. Very naive question, but what is land? Why are people so connected to it? God, it's such a fascinating question and we could get quite philosophical at this stage because our, our human connectivity with the land is is so complicated and so emotive. And you're right, it, 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 but it's rightly emotive. You know, we, we get kind of 
spiritual connectivity and and improved well-being and, and a better mental state when we are in nature and when we are in woodlands and are surrounded by the beauty of nature and things that we can't really comprehend and I think that sort of spirituality is probably missing from a lot of our society in other ways now and developing and recreating those connections and that connectivity is really important for societal well-being so you know what is Land. Land is our ability to exist. That's the kind of the deep side of it. You know, we we sort of disaggregate society and cities from the land and we say we build you and, you know, we'll build you a big tower. You can go live in a big tower and you don't have to ever worry about where your food comes from or how your waste is recycled or how your air is filtered or where, you know, your where your biodiversity comes from that makes you happy. And And, and it just takes it so far in that direction that we kind of lose the we lose the importance of understanding and valuing the intrinsic importance of land in creating our ability to live like that. And yet land in itself is simply a system of property rights. It's simply a system of ownership that says you can stand in a place and draw a red line boundary around it on a map and say that you own it. And if you own it, therefore you can do certain things with it and there's certain rights. And so in many ways, it's completely arbitrary. But like it's this idea of the tragedy of the commons, okay? You know, which we all know within sustainability circles is if the, nobody has this idea of ownership over stuff, we just exploit it and we don't take it seriously. And so kind of saying you own this, you've therefore you've got the right to use it, but you've also got a responsibility to take care of it. I think that gets kind of closer maybe to where the idea of land should be. No, exactly. That makes perfect sense, Emily. But now, given my background, it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you, How has land performed as an investment over time, especially compared with other asset classes, equities, bonds, what have you? And while I'm sure that is a very wide ranging question, what investment are we talking about specifically? Land in the middle of Belgravia? Land in Norfolk? So anyway, I'll leave it to you, Emily. Guide me through the investment case for land, whatever it may be. It's performed well and it's it's, it's performed um, above... um, other um, asset classes for that reason that there are a lot of opportunities associated with it within the last 30 to 40 years in particular around development and you know creating other property types from land has been a major source of interest your original question was about performance and I have a graph here but this is a podcast so you can't see it but fundamentally <laughs> land outperforms other asset classes and it's particularly outperforms in the context of being counterinflationary. So we know in situations where, uh, like we are at the moment, where we have hyperinflation, uh, investors are looking for something tangible. They're looking for something that's going to appreciate with inflation. And so it performs particularly well at times when there are those external pressures. So in, in the way that um, bonds or gilts may be struggling at the moment, and we're in a particularly interesting economic time anyway from that perspective, that real assets, things that you can touch, things that you know aren't going to go anywhere, uh, things that you know will improve with inflation are really valuable. So the thing with land is you can compare it to gold, um, but gold will just sit there. <laughs> you know, you can't, you know, play with it or do anything else with it. Um, whereas but land, it doesn't provide you with an income, right? Which I think land does. Completely. This is exactly the point that, that land will always, always provide you with some income. It might be small, but it will provide you with an income. And it provides you with a lot of other stuff too. We've just alluded to a lot of them enjoyment, <laughs> social value. So hold on, so compared to a gilt, for example, which provides you with an income of 1% or 2%, what kind of an income could one expect from land? 
So we track uh, both income and capital appreciation uh, within land or uh, capital value within land. And we would normally peg a standard rental income. So if you bought land and then let it to somebody, you would generally make about 1% income return per year. Um, and the reason that investors are normally interested in land is either because of that very, very steady, consistent return um, or because they're looking for other opportunities, like you say, within the strategic land portfolio, looking for development or now increasingly these kind of net zero type ambitions where they're looking for offsetting opportunities and the value of offsetting opportunities. So we would normally just say about 1%. It's been pretty static. Interestingly, it's that kind of rental dynamic, which is going to be really impacted by this legislative change period we're going through. So the way that rents have been underpinned by the certainty of the political system, that might be changing. And that's certainly a dynamic that landowners are having to think through in terms of who they are letting their land to, what kind of opportunities they're creating for people to live and work on the land. That's a really interesting dynamic as well. So maybe that 1% will start to shift. We don't know. It might go up, it might go down. But certainly it being as steady as it has been may not be the, the same truth in the future. Uh, so is it fair to say that land has sort of a gold-like profile? It's an inflation hedge, perhaps. It keeps its capital value over time. Unlike gold, of course, it does provide an income. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because what we see at the moment is this massive spike in energy prices. And so uh, the majority of commodities, of farm-based commodities, will also track energy prices because there's a direct correlation between putting uh, wheat into one of the bioethanol plants in order to be able to produce ethanol. So if your diesel petrol prices are, are going up, then your ethanol prices will also be going up. And so you kind of can see this commodity super cycle coming so that, that you get that income, you get that opportunity from, from land off this as, as well as, um, as the capital appreciation, which is driven by the commodity super cycles, which is driven by profitability and equally layering in all of these other opportunities. That's where you get the, the, um, the real value but it does require careful management. It's not simply a question of putting X million pounds into a particular pot and saying we want to put that into the stock market, just see what it does. It is a more sophisticated and much more complicated uh, and careful investment. And here's a cheeky question. Does it behave? And what I mean by that is does land tend to behave like a safe haven? I would argue it does particularly under the last political regime, which was very protective of, of farmers and farmer income. I think it's, it is now going to get more volatile because we're going to go through this short-term period of, of regulatory change. There might be a lot of churn. There will be a lot of farmers who maybe started their career 40, 50 years ago who may not want to try and make sense of this future, who, you know, in, in terms of the complexity of the changes that are going on that I was you know, trying to articulate right at the beginning, we're, we're expecting there to be more retirements and more opportunities for a new generation of farmers coming in. So that kind of safe haven perspective is changing a little bit just because the business models are having to evolve quite quickly to keep up with the political change. But hold on, Emily, getting right down to it, say if I were to buy X acres of land today, what issues would I face relative to deploying that same capital on the stock market? Obviously, for one, it would be much easier for me to buy and sell in the stock market. Is land much less liquid? Well, look, you might choose to put your cash in the stock market into kind of, I don't know, ag tech or um, life sciences or whatever it is. You can target a particular kind of type of stock that you want to put your money into. Within farming, your ability to create anything from it 
is uniquely tied to the, the physical and fundamental geography of that place. So first and foremost, you've got to say, you know, am I going to be looking at kind of grade one farmland? Um, am I looking at grade four uplands? And then once you've got that physical geography sorted, you will then be able to work out what you can produce, naturally produce from the land. And then you can say, well, there's a physical limit to how much it can produce. Just by, by the very nature of it, it will only produce through one growing season. You know, you've only got sort of a certain number of um, um, months in the year where you can produce grass or a crop or whatever it is. And then that's when it begins to then get more complicated to say, well, what else can you then do? What can you layer in in terms of alternative sources of income? Are there old cottages that you can let? Are there new diversifications that you can start? Are there different and innovative crops that you can create? And that's when you begin to kind of build in the value, right? But you have to start with that fundamental and inherent character of what you've got. In terms of making sense of it, the key thing that I think will be the, the, the difference between sort of the success of businesses and those who are really going to struggle is being able to capture more of the value chain. So work up the value chain more. And it might be direct selling to consumers. It might be forming a producer organization and collaborating with neighbors or people in a particular area in order to negotiate on price. It might be working as a cluster of farmers to be able to target inward investment into the environment. So if you kind of work out where your um, river catchment is and work out what the water quality potentials might be, you start to kind of form a vehicle for inward investment into those environmental outcomes. And so it's that ability to kind of see beyond the farm boundary, either up the value chain or across a landscape that I think is going to be the difference between those businesses who are going to do better and the ones who perhaps are going to really struggle to make most of the opportunities that we're being presented with. So, Emily, how easy is it to buy land? And I'm assuming that whatever your answer is, it's probably easier to buy than to sell. Uh, I, I would argue not necessarily true that actually I was it's, it's very difficult to buy land. We look at less than half a percent of the total area of land being traded every year. So the opportunities are, are, are very limited. So There's about 120,000 acres so is across. It, so is it fair to say that this is largely a buy and hold kind of investment? Once people acquire it, they tend to very rarely sell it, especially in the short term. It, it is it is not a dip in, dip out kind of investment. People tend to invest in land for very long term reasons. And a, a lot of our clients have, have had land for a very, very long time. I remember one of the very first investor meetings I ever did. And I was asked what my um, what my hundred year view on investing in land was. And I didn't have one. I'd never thought about it, you know, I mean, which is silly because actually being from a family farm, you've always got a multi-generational view. You know, you're always working in sort of periods of maybe 50 years to say, well, I'm starting now and then I'm going to work for 50 years and then I'm going to retire. And what am I passing on? You know, you're inherently thinking in long term cycles, but I've never really thought about it. And actually their answer was never to buy anything below 80 feet above sea level because of the risk of flooding and sea level change as a result of climate change. So. I thought, oh, okay, that's really interesting that you're taking such a long-term view and, and possibly a cynical view against our ability to create a livable planet for everybody, that that would be that. So, you know, interesting. Everybody's got a view on it, but it, that super long-term view is very dominant within the market. And I think it's also the sign of a really responsible land investor. So that's really interesting. So if I wanted to diversify a standard portfolio of stocks and bonds, etc., the usual asset classes. How do I begin? 
Do I contact Savills? Do I just say, Emily, hi, I'd like to buy some land? What kind of investment amounts are we looking at, actually? So that's, it's an interesting, really, really interesting question again, um, Fahad, because um, yes, absolutely. Come and speak to an agent and you will need to know why. What's your why? What's your why for investing? So if you are looking at just diversifying a portfolio, there's there's probably a lot of opportunity and different types of investment opportunity you could look at. If you were just motivated by putting a sum of money into this, I would say that um, you would be looking at uh, trying to get a let land portfolio. So basically, it's unlikely that most investors have the skills or the knowledge or the appetite for running a farm business themselves. So you want to look at something that's big enough to enable professional farmers to be able to run the business as a tenant, as a tenanted business. And so you might be looking at multiples of, well, this is where the economics of it gets so interesting because the standard current model for kind of a tenanted farm business would be one combine running over a big area. So you might be looking at 500 acres plus. But actually, the flip side of that is that you might have lots of smaller, more diverse businesses working together, sort of layering on top of each other. And so you could operate off a smaller footprint, but it would be more labor intensive for you guys as whoever the investor was as landowners. Ah, so there we have a number, something to hold on to, 500 acres, give or take. And I get that there's huge nuance in diversification. But let's say 500 acres of Norfolk, how much would that cost? Is this a feasible investment for somebody with a portfolio of, say, five million pounds? Yeah, I mean, that would be a five million pound investment, pretty much, give or take, depending on the if, like you just said, you don't want the house, but there might be a house with it. There might be barns with it. If it's bare land, that's going to be different to if it's got a lot of amenity value. If it's got a lovely river running through it, then there might be fishing rights associated with that. There might be timber there. There might be already um, existing parcels of woodland and they would be valued differently. But our bare land value would be about £8,000 an acre. And I mean, give or take. But actually the market value, what you would have to be prepared to pay, would be influenced by all of those different factors. And many of our clients, and yours, I'm sure, don't look at land investments simply as a function of what they're going to return financially. It's all, it's, they actually want to buy to preserve. So from that perspective, what mega trends do we see regarding sustainability from land? It's huge, but it's also really important. And we said right at the beginning about this kind of, you know, post-Brexit agricultural transition and how all of that stuff is changing. But also, you know, these these sort of, like you say, mega trends around sustainability and kind of the net zero targets that have been put into the financial system behind the whole thing are also kind of like causing a huge amount of interest in understanding our natural systems and this this sort of search for nature-based solutions. And we see it from all sides. You know, you have sort of individuals, philanthropists who are kind of environmentally aware and want to make a difference. And for example, Ed Sheeran recently said he wanted to buy as much of the UK as he possibly could for rewilding and received a lot of criticism within the farming press in particular for having said that. But when you, again, look at the government targets for improving biodiversity and meeting net zero, that individuals want to achieve these kind of things may not necessarily be a bad thing, provided that there's enough space left over for food production and for staining our other systems that we're really interested in. And at the other end, kind of the corporates who are really um, challenged by net zero targets are maybe beginning to look at how carbon markets might evolve to be a new layer of value that exists within land. And we're getting a lot of inquiries to kind of understand what carbon markets really mean and how it influences on, on land outcomes. 
again, on one side, we can see how that disrupts current patterns of land use. But on the other side, government is signalling really major and ambitious tree planting targets. And if it wants those tree planting targets to happen, then the money needs to come from somewhere. So understanding kind of the government direction of travel against that kind of, you know, um, current pattern of land ownership, I think is is key. And, and that we, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times now, but that dynamic and and the general shift from it being purely kind of agriculture for food production to it being a very blended land use for food production, for communities, for water resources, for rewilding, for biodiversity, for the environment, for carbon. That's key in my mind. The most successful systems will be the ones that blend all of those together. And is this essentially what we know as regenerative agriculture? Completely. It, it is exactly that idea that the current system of land occupation, if, if you sort of don't see it as producing purely one thing, but understand its full essence of producing a lot of stuff for a lot of different people in, in a lot of valuable ways, layering social and environmental benefit and carbon opportunities within a single system, you begin to get a much more interesting and diverse countryside. If you say our only motivation is carbon and this is what we want to achieve, then you tend to get polarised forms of land use which equally can be very correct. It can be the only economically way to produce these things that the market needs at a cost point that people are prepared to pay for. And against this kind of background of consumers really facing massive pressures from energy price rises and, and other price rises, we mustn't forget that very economic forms of land use are also really important to meet those needs. And it's just about understanding that we can do it all either a lot better or incrementally better <laughs> To, to meet those objectives that it's just the difference between where we are now and where we might get to in the future. And Emily, my final question, what is the future? What does the future for land look like in the UK? So I'm super optimistic about this because the noise we feel at the moment and we see at the moment around some of this stuff is a transition, okay? So, you know, we've, we've had this single system. We're going to a much more diverse future where businesses are going to be expected to do a lot more in this space. The opportunity there is true. There's going to be opportunities from selling carbon. There's going to be opportunities from all of this stuff. But it's a transition. Long term, land needs to meet all of our post-fossil fuel economy needs. Okay, So if we're true that we're getting to a net zero economy, everything that we currently sustain from fossil fuels needs to come from somewhere else. That means that we need renewable energy. We need renewable manufacturing materials, construction materials, um, chemicals, plastics, bioplastics, you know, all of this stuff, bioplastics, you know, being a really good example, uh, and hemp for kind of construction materials. And, it, it, you know, it all needs to come from the land whilst respecting all of those other needs for biodiversity, clean water, clean air, public space, all of that stuff. So how we organise the land to be able to do this is the key question in my mind. So I don't have any kind of concern that there's going to be some kind of technological disruption to mean that we don't need the product of land anymore, so it's no longer a good investment. We will always need the land to provide us with something. How we pay back, how we pay back into the land is the key question. Creating an economic system that invests more into natural capital than we take from it is critical. And I see the beginnings 
of some of that thinking coming into government policy, you know, within the revisions to the Treasury Green Book that kind of talk about natural capital and the need to, to be reinvesting into that. But that's that's truly regenerative farming. It's not just about how we use the land. It's the system, the economic system that becomes a regenerative economy <laughs> to pay back into this stuff and to pay back into the people as well. I mean, that's my vision of it. The actual future will be um, there will always be stuff we need from the land. It's creating opportunities for people who can make sense of that. That's going to be the difference. That was fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. As we said at the beginning of this episode, land is a very emotive topic for our investors. And you have artfully guided us through everything it encompasses beyond returns, ideas of identity, heritage, the rural economy and increasing the focus on sustainability. Thank you so much for your time. You're very, very welcome. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Wealth Chat. Do make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you're notified as soon as the next episode is available. Until then, thank you to you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambras Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited Guernsey branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.